to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. For all of you Bible scholars, that immediately follows 1 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. And let's do this if we can. Just as we recognize the authority of God's word, can we stand together as we read our passage this morning? 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And I'm reading out of the English Standard Version this morning. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. And think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. This is God's word to us this morning. Let's pray, shall we? Our gracious Father, thank you for your love and care for us this morning. Lord, we, as we open your word today, we pray that you would speak, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes to see marvelous things in your law, that you would awaken the affections of our heart, Lord, that we might have a great passion for the glory of your name, for the spread of the fame of your name. Open our ears that we might hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Speak through these lips of clay. Encourage us, challenge us, provoke us. Holy Spirit, come and do what only you can do. Magnify and lift up Jesus. And we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Everyone said amen. You may be seated this morning. The 1996 Olympics were held in Atlanta. The men's 4 by 100 meter relay team had never previously lost a race that they had ever been in. Now think about this. For many, many Olympiads, the men's 4 by 100 meter team had never lost a race. And they were, pre- they were heavily favored to win this race as well. And of course, as they start out of the gate, the first heat, they were well in the lead, but as they came ready for the second heat. John Drummond and Tim Harden fumbled the exchange, which gave the Canadians a little bit of an advantage, an advantage from which they would never look back. And the United States lost for the first time in Olympic history the men's 4 by 100 meter relay. And they lost because the team fumbled the exchange. And I think there is a stark warning to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that we must be careful that we do not fumble the exchange of faith from one generation to the next. How many understand this morning that faith is always the Christian faith? When I say faith, I don't mean this ethereal thing that's out there. I mean the Christian faith is always only one generation away from extinction. Now I'm glad, I mean... 
provide this caveat for you this morning. Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we know the church is going to prevail. But Jesus was speaking of his universal church. But I want you to think for a moment that there have been times that there have been geographic locations in which the faith, for the most part, has become extinct. Let me give you an example this morning. We think of the modern nation of Turkey. Yet back in the fourth century... The actual capital of the Byzantine Christian Empire was in Constantinople, which, was, which is actually today modern-day Istanbul. And in the 4th century, Turkey, again, modern-day or, or ancient Byzantium, was a thoroughly Christianized country. In fact, one of the most famous churches today, the Hagia Sophia, was pastored by one of the great expositors in the church's history, John Chrysostom, called Golden Mouth because of his powerful oratorical ability and his skill in exegeting the scriptures. Yet today, the nation of Turkey is 0.4% Christian. In other words, 99.6% unbelieving or non-Christian. And so what happened in the nation of Turkey that Christianity for the most part has become extinct? What happened somewhere along the way is that they, they fumbled the exchange of faith. In fact, if we go back and read those first couple of chapters in the book of Revelation, particularly chapters 2 and 3, which those churches were located in Asia Minor, which is today Turkey and Greece. And we could see that Jesus warned them repeatedly that if they didn't change their behavior, if they didn't change their ways, if they didn't change their attitudes, that he would come and remove the candlestick from among them. And that's exactly what happened happen. I'm sure you've heard the old saying that God has no grandchildren. Have you ever heard that before? Isn't that true? All of us have to come to faith on our own. We don't get in the kingdom because we have a mother and father who is a Christian or because we had grandparents who was a Christian or we have some kind of heritage. We face this very real problem in the evangelical church, specifically in the West today. That we have fumbled the exchange of faith. I go into many churches and preach and speak. And I would dare to say that this year my experience has been. I've spoken in about 30 different churches I believe. And 99% of those churches when you walk in. There are very few younger people. When I say younger I mean even 30s and 40s. That are populating the churches. And I'm asking myself. Why is it that we have such a disconnect between older generations of Christians and those younger generations that don't seem to be present in our churches? And I believe that the answer is found for us here in this passage because we have somehow, some way, have fumbled the exchange of faith. Think about this statistic that two-thirds of those aged 18 to 29 years will, once they go off to college, will never return to the church. So the question that I want to pose to you this morning is how do we successfully pass on the baton of faith? And I believe that Paul gives us three principles in this passage that are going to help us to be able to successfully pass on the baton of faith. So let me give them to you up front and then we'll come back and work through each one. To stand strong in grace, secondly to start taking discipleship seriously, and then finally to stay the course. So let's look at this first one, to stand strong in grace. Look with me, if you will, again at verse 1. Paul instructs Timothy, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace 
that is in Christ Jesus. Now it's helpful for us to go back and be able to establish some context because we're picking up Paul here in the midst of an argument that sometimes we might not understand unless we get the context. So 2 Timothy is part of a larger uh, uh, corpus of literature called, commonly by scholars, the pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy we see that Paul in Acts chapter 16 had established or planted the church at Ephesus. He had worked there for about three years. And then his protege, Timothy, he had placed in charge while Paul went on to do other things and plant other churches. And he left Timothy with a specific charge that we found given for us in the book of 1 Timothy. That charge is to defend the gospel against false teaching. That charge is to raise up and ordain qualified elders of the church. That call is to teach people how to conduct themselves in the house of God, what to do with widows, how to elect deacons and the qualifications that would be uh, uh, cognizant of church leadership, and also what it meant for pastors to have certain character qualifications that they should not be greedy and such. And so Timothy was given this great responsibility, this charge to go in and to build this church on the foundation that Paul had laid. And for Timothy, everything was going well. That seems to be the impetus. That seems to be the thrust of 1 Timothy. The people loved his preaching. That people were responding to his ministry. That things were going swimmingly. Everything was going fine. But then as we move along to 2 Timothy, we see that things have changed. Everything was not going swimmingly. The people that said that they would be with Timothy forever and would stand with him had betrayed him. There were apostates in the church. There were false prophets that were infiltrating the church and filling the church with false teaching. And we see several indications that this had a profound effect upon Timothy's courage. In fact, if we look at uh, verse 5 in chapter 1, Paul reminds Timothy, or actually in verse 6, he reminds him to fan into flame the gift that God has given him because God has not given us a spirit of fear. So we know that Timothy was experiencing fear. We know that Timothy was somewhat ashamed to enter into that suffering in verse 7 of chapter 1 because Paul invites him not to be ashamed, excuse me, in verse 9, not to be ashamed of the suffering that he was experiencing. So we know that Timothy was experiencing a whole range of emotions and difficulty in his assignment. And it's interesting that Paul reminds Timothy throughout this letter that Timothy is not alone in his suffering. Second Timothy is the last recorded word of the Apostle Paul. These are his most personal words. If you knew that you were going to die in a couple of months, how would you spend those last few months of your life? What would you say to those who are closest to you? We have these words that are recorded to us uh, from the Apostle Paul, his very last words. And Paul wants to remind Timothy that Timothy is not alone in his suffering. In fact, Paul finds himself in prison. He's going to be, whether it's a year from now or two years from when this is written, scholars debate because there's some question as to when Second Timothy was written, whether it was 64, 65 A.D., most scholars believe he was martyred under the reign of Nero in 67 A.D. And so we know that Paul was not long for this life when he wrote this. 
Paul was reminding Timothy that he's not writing from some perch in an academic tower, that Paul is on the ground. He's suffering immensely. And again, Paul had already been in prison one time, but this was under house arrest. And he had been released and probably had gone to Spain. And now he had come back and he was imprisoned again. But he was not under house arrest this time. These were not like prisons that we have today where you get an hour out in the yard and you get three square meals a day. I mean, these were terrible, horrible places that were filled with vermin and filth when raw sewage ran between your legs and Paul was shackled. And so Paul was experiencing great suffering. But even more than the physical suffering he was experiencing, he had experienced great emotional angst and suffering because just like those that had abandoned Timothy in Ephesus, Paul reminds us in chapter 1 that there were many that had walked away from him. In fact, he says in chapter 4 that everyone had abandoned him. Only Luke was with him. All of those that was, they said that they would be with him had left him. And so Paul knew what it, was, what it was like to be left alone. Paul knew what it was like to be betrayed. He knew what it was like to defend the gospel against all odds. And he reminds Timothy obsessively in this letter that, Timothy, your call is to defend and transmit the faith. And I believe that that's a call that all of us need to be reminded of this morning. That the Great Commission is not for us to go and make decisions. The Great Commission is for for us to go and make what? Disciples. And that's what Paul wants to remind Timothy of this morning. Of course, we recognize that apostasy and false teaching is not something that is unique to the first century. In fact, we're living in a great age of spiritual decline in the West, not necessarily in other parts of the world, but in the West. And we see uh, survey after survey and statistic after statistic that are done that tell us, and it seems the news seems to get worse and worse the longer we go along, that seems like the church, the evangelical church in America, is in a significant decline. We see apostasy happening. In fact, one of the most popular movements right now on social media, on Twitter, is hashtag exvangelical. There are many people that are deconstructing the faith. And if we're not careful, we can look at all of this that's happening in our world. We can look at all that's happening in the evangelical church. And we can become very discouraged. Because it is the end of cultural Christianity in America. And for some of us, that can be really scary because we've banked our lives on sort of a nominal Christianity that is kind of bereft of any kind of gospel bite. But let us not be discouraged because, again, we know that Jesus is building his church and that there there might be apostasy, there might be betrayals, there might be those that are deconstructing, that there is still a remnant that is alive and well. And in the midst of all of this apostasy and false teaching and discouragement, I want you to notice how Paul responds to it. And what does he tell Timothy in verse 1? To be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strengthened by grace. Think about this for a moment. We could all probably define grace, couldn't we? If we were to say, what is the definition of grace? We would say, God's unmerited favor. 
Some people use an acronym, GRACE, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. But we get the idea, Ephesians 2.8 says, that it is not of works lest any man should boast. We are saved by grace through faith. But often as Christians, that's where we leave grace. We leave grace on the front end of the Christian experience. We leave grace as the ABCs of the Christian experience or We leave grace maybe in saying, well, that's how we get in the kingdom is the grace of God, his unmerited favor. That's why he saves us is by his grace. And that is certainly true. That's what Paul talks about and gives this great, long, detailed argument in Romans about the grace of God, the righteousness of God. But Paul is looking at a different aspect of grace in this particular passage. He tells us that grace is not only the way we get in the kingdom... That grace is the way that God sustains us to remain in the kingdom. As Tim Keller says, that grace is not just the ABCs of salvation. It is the A to Z of the Christian life. What do we mean by that? Look again. Be strengthened by grace. That word strengthen is a word in the Greek that literally means to be empowered It literally means to be strengthened in the inner man. It is the same Greek word, a common Greek word that is used throughout the Bible to talk of Jesus' miracles and works of power. So Paul is telling us something interesting here. He's telling us that there is a power that resides in each one of us who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus that causes us to stand strong and be steadfast even when everything around us is shaking. Isn't that good news for us this morning? To be strengthened by grace. Let me give you a passage that we can look at really quickly. Titus chapter 2 explains this for us, verses 9 through 11. And this is what Paul writes to Titus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now there's the front end of grace. That's the ABCs of grace. And we can all say, thank God for the grace that appeared, that brought us to salvation. But Paul doesn't end his argument here. Notice what he says next. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing, the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? And training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. What is Paul describing? Paul is describing our discipleship. So what does grace do? Grace trains us. Grace empowers us. Grace strengthens us, strengthens us so that we can live the life of a disciple. We need this grace today. That grace is sufficient. How many of you have ever run up against a circumstance or a situation in which you did not have the natural resources to be able to deal with it? Maybe it was a death of a loved one. Maybe it was just overwhelming trouble and affliction. And how many can testify also with the Apostle Paul that even in the midst of those times when you didn't have the natural inner resources to be able to deal with those things, that you discovered that grace is sufficient. And that's what Paul wants to remind Timothy. Timothy, you're going through a hard time right now. Timothy, it's difficult when you're all alone in this battle 
Timothy, I know that people have said that they were going to be with you and they've left the church. I know that they're criticizing you. I know they won't sit still for sound doctrine anymore. But Timothy, remember this. Grace is on your side. And I just want to tell somebody this morning that grace is on your side. And that grace is sufficient. And that grace is the answer to your prayer this morning. One of the great annual New Year's traditions is the New Year's Day Tourney of Roses Parade in Pasadena, California. Well, a number of years ago during this parade, a particularly gilded float was going down the, the, uh, the avenue and it was in the middle of the parade and ran out of gas and stalled right there in the middle of the parade, halting the entire parade. What makes this more remarkable is the fact that the float belonged to the Standard Oil and Gas Company. Now I want you to think for a moment about the juxtaposition here. Here you have at the time the world's largest gas and oil company who has a float that runs out of gas in the middle of the parade. It seems to me that those who were operating the float didn't recognize or understand the, the power, the resources they had at their disposal. And that's why they ran out of gas. And I wonder how many of us as Christians face this same thing. We're trying to live our Christian life in the flesh, trying to do it through willpower, trying to white-knuckle it to the end till we hear the horns and we hear Jesus, you know, shout and us be taken up to glory. We're trying our best to be the best Christians that we can be. And we fail, and we're discouraged, and we're continually falling behind, and we wonder what's wrong. And the entire time, we have this incredible resource at our disposal called grace that God is inviting us to partake of. An inner resource that is able to strengthen us even in the most difficult times. An inner resource that is able to empower us to stand even when everyone else around us is falling down. A resource that is able to encourage us when nobody's there to encourage us. How many has ever found there's, there's times in your life when you don't have anyone to encourage you? You have to encourage yourself. Grace is able. But notice also that this grace is not some disembodied force. It's not some disembodied entity. Note that it's located in a person. Notice what Paul says. The grace that is in who? The grace that is in Christ Jesus. This grace is made available to us in the person of Christ. By his death and resurrection and ascension into heaven. And that's why Hebrews 7.25 says that he is able to save to the uttermost. Those who draw near to him in faith. For he lives to make intercession for his people do you hear that promise church you notice what the writer of hebrews is telling us that christ is able to save to the uttermost in other words there is nothing that can separate us from his love his power his salvation and why is that because our king is applying daily the benefits of salvation the benefits of grace the benefits of redemption to his people through his intercessory ministry in heaven 
Isn't that incredible to think about? That Jesus' ministry is finished, but yet it's not finished. It's done, but it's not done. On the cross, he accomplished everything that he needed to. And at the right hand of the Father, he is daily applying all of those benefits that he purchased on the cross for you and for me. Now think about this. That means every day that I get up, and no matter what challenge I face, I know that there is someone in my corner that is applying the benefits of grace to me in my situation, in my circumstance, so that I can walk through it. No matter how difficult it is, no matter how painful it is, grace is on your side. Secondly, note that Paul tells Timothy not only to stand strong in grace, but to start taking discipleship seriously. Note verse 2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There were numerous times in, in Paul's letters that he would encourage those churches that he was writing to, to look at his example, to imitate his example. But it's interesting here that he doesn't tell Timothy to imitate his example. He reminds Timothy of the pattern of sound words that Timothy has heard. And Paul is telling us something very specific about our discipleship here. Paul is telling us that discipleship is based upon the accuracy of teaching. That our discipleship is based on doctrine. And I know that's a very dirty word in much of, especially the American evangelical church. We don't like the word doctrine because we have a kind of a loosey-goosey, want to build a kind of Jesus in our own image kind of gospel that doesn't like the hard edges of the gospel. We like the benevolent Jesus who wants to let everybody in. We like the benevolent Jesus who makes no demands of our life. We like the benevolent Jesus who makes no demands on our discipleship. But Paul is obsessively focused on the content of the gospel. You can't read the pastoral epistles and not come away with this striking feature of Paul's obsessive, compulsive idea of what the gospel should be. And notice what Paul says here. What you have heard from me, what you have witnessed, what you have heard in your ear. Again, in chapter 1, Paul reminds Timothy in verse 13 to follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. So this is a reiteration. It's an emphasis that Paul is giving Timothy on the gospel. And notice what Paul says. Paul says to entrust this. In chapter 1, Paul says that the gospel has been entrusted to him. And now he encourages Timothy to entrust it to others. Let's look at that word entrust just for a minute. Because in the Greek, it describes a treasure that has been given to someone to be a steward over. How many of you have a safety deposit box at the bank? Well, it used to be a thing. Maybe not now so much it is. But if you do, or maybe you have some kind of a safe at your home, why do you put things in a safety deposit box? To protect it from invasion. To keep it. To preserve it. And that's the language that Paul is using here. He's telling us that the gospel must be preserved. That's why the writer of Jude tells us to contend for the faith that was not recently delivered to the saints. 
but to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We have an entrustment. The same gospel that Paul received, he hands off to Timothy. And essentially what he's saying is that, Timothy, I'm entrusting this to you. No additives, no improvements. We don't need to rehab Jesus' image for a new generation. I'm giving you what I received. And your commission, your charge is to go and to give others exactly as it's been given to me. I want you to think about this for a minute, especially in the generation in which we live, in which Christianity kind of is on the downgrade and we feel like we need to give it some kind of a help. If we think that we're going to make a hostile world toward the gospel, love Jesus and want to serve Him by proclaiming the absolute absurdity of a crucified Savior, then we are blinded. This message of the gospel is supernatural for a reason. I want you to think for a moment. Today we wear crosses around our neck as jewelry. Do you know how absurd that would have been in the first century? Because the cross was the most horrible, brutal way for someone to die. It was reserved for the worst perverts. It was reserved for the most vile offenders. In fact, Roman citizens were actually couldn't even be crucified. We look back in history to find out what crucifixion was all about. And even many of the great Roman historians were silent about crucifixion because even bringing it up was more than they could bear, the average Roman. It was out of sight, out of mind. We know this happens, but we don't talk about it in polite company. Because for someone to be crucified is the most horrible thing imaginable. Many of the families of the crucifixion victims actually never even claimed the bodies of their loved ones because they had shamed them so much through the act of crucifixion and it had brought shame upon their family, especially in an honor and shame culture that they just said they're lost to us, they're excommunicated, they're not a part of our family anymore, their memory is cut off forever because they have brought such shame on our family by their crucifixion. And this is the death. That God purposed in eternity for His Son to die. A shameful, ignominious death. Now I want you to imagine preaching that message in the first century cultural milieu that was the Roman Mediterranean world. Do you think that that was going to attract a lot of followers? Hey, come follow this crucified Messiah. Come give your life to this crucified Messiah who is a shameful figure that was crucified for your sin. Friends, can I tell you it's not any different today. We're not going to be able to attract people with the rehab Jesus message or improving the hard edges of the gospel. The gospel, its power is not in how we present it. The gospel's power is in its content. And that's why Paul said in Romans Romans chapter 1 verse 16 that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We proclaim it. Hard edges and all. We give it straight. We cut it straight. And the Holy Spirit goes to work in the hearts of men. So that through the foolishness of the preaching of the cross, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that God chooses to save. So that the foolishness of this world is the wisdom of God. And God brings to naught the wisdom of this world through the foolishness of the cross. It's a reminder that we must proclaim the essence 
of discipleship, the center of it all, is the crucified Messiah. Many of you have played the, uh, the telephone game. How many remember the telephone game when you were young? So you sit around in a circle, and then you have one person that starts, and they, says, they say something, they whisper something in the ear of their neighbor, and they continue to whisper it all around the circle. And the idea is that at the end of the circle, they have the same phrase or same sentence that was said at the beginning. Now, if you've ever played the telephone game, how many know that that hardly ever happens? You get to the end of the circle, and it's different. Could it be that's why we struggle with such decline in the Western church is because the message that was given at the beginning has been passed down, but it's not been passed down accurately. It's not been passed down and preserved in its power. Instead, we have shaved the hard edges. We have rehabbed it. We've tried to improve it. And then we present this kind of anemic Christianity to the culture and say, come and live. Jesus will make your dreams come true. You can have your best life now. Friends, can I tell you, that's not the gospel that Paul entrusts. But I want you to notice the method of discipleship. Again, it's the preaching. It's the proclamation of God's word. Words are what Paul is focused on. Words have power because God created with his word. God upholds and sustains all things with his word. Think about that for a minute. Do you know what lies behind matter in creation? What is it that lies behind matter? Physical laws. What are physical laws? Physical laws are merely equations. What are equations? Words. God sustains all things by the word of his power. And if God created the world and he sustains and upholds everything by the power of his word so that even the smallest sparrow doesn't fall to the ground apart from the Father's activity, do you not think that he is able to do exceeding abundantly and above all in your life? Notice also here, Paul encourages Timothy to multiply the gospel. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men. Notice the qualifier here, faithful men. So that they might be able to do what? So that they might be able to entrust it to others. There is this idea of multiplication here. And understand this. That God is more interested in multiplication than addition. In the church we often talk about adding. We want to add members. But that's really non-biblical language. Go back to the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1. And what do we find? God commanded Adam and Eve not to add, but to do what? Multiply. If we look at the book of Acts, that record of the infant church, what do we find? We find six different summary statements in the book of Acts coming at different intervals. And they all remarkably sound similar. It says something like this, And the word of God increased and the number of disciples multiplied. Why? Because God wants multiplication and not addition. Let me ask you this question. Maybe you remember this from your math class. If I were to give you, if I were to offer you a million dollars... 
up front or one penny doubled each day for a month for 30 days, which would you choose? Oh, I'd take the million dollars. Well, I hope not because that one penny doubled every day for a month at the end of the month would be five million dollars. And that's the power of multiplication, isn't it? And that's what Paul is reminding Timothy of here. Timothy, there has to be a movement of God's word that occurs in our churches. And this is why, why what we do at Item is to train the few who train the many. We want to see this ripple effect. You know what I mean by a ripple effect? When you drop a pebble or a stone in a body of water, what happens? There are the concentric rings, the, 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 the weight that goes out from the stone or the, or the pebble, depending on ha- how heavy it is. And what does it do? It continues to go out to emanate from the center. And that is what we're called to do as believers. That is our role is to disciple others so that we start a movement of God's word. But here's the key. Notice that the implication Paul is giving Timothy here is not that discipleship is passive, but that it's active. Do you see that? Notice what Paul says. Paul doesn't tell Timothy to wait until someone approaches you and then entrust the gospel to them. Am I reading the right Bible? Am I reading the right passage? Yes. What does he say? He says, no, Timothy, you are the active one in doing this. I had a man in my church one time who said, well, pastor, I'd love to be able to disciple people. I'm just waiting on someone to ask me. Well, we've missed the whole boat if you're waiting on someone to ask you to disciple them. No, our job as the mature, our job as the disciples is to look for those among us, to build relationships with, to develop them, to invite them into the process. Remember when Jesus called his disciples, what did he do? He invited them, follow me. But there has to be a starting point. One of the great disconnects that I see in the evangelical church is simply this, that we have far too many passive Christians who think that their duty, the sum of their Christian duty is to attend church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, give, and then go home, wash, rinse, repeat. And that's what happens for years and years and years, and we never see a true discipleship movement. But what if each one of us, what if each one of us could find one person in 2023 to disciple? Just one person. Do you know the number of people in this room, each discipling one person for just that one year? Do you know what kind of multiplication effect that would have in the years to come? This church wouldn't be able to hold the number of people that will be a part of it. Paul reminds Timothy that we need to start taking this discipleship seriously. Essentially, there are two kinds of Christians this morning. There are what I call reservoir Christians. What is a reservoir? It collects water. There are many of us that just collect, right? We collect information. Open your Bible. For some of us, we have notes from years ago. Our Bible looks like a filing cabinet, right? But we collect, we collect. We're full of information, but we're not giving any out. And then there are river Christians. And what does a river do? A river flows, right? A river flows and it dumps out into the sea. So are you a reservoir or are you a river of God's word? And finally, number three, to stay the course, 
It's interesting that Paul gives us three really brief word pictures to describe the life of a disciple here. And I don't have much time, but just let me briefly mention each one. Notice verse 3, Paul reminds Timothy again, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Then in verse 4, For no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Paul speaks here of a single-minded devotion. When a Roman soldier took the pledge before the emperor, he pledged himself never to get married. He pledged himself never to have children. He was completely and totally at the emperor's command. Completely and totally, whatever the emperor wanted for him, that's the way he lived his life. Roman soldiers lived their lives in great suffering. We often hear of their heroics in battle, but that really doesn't describe the warp and woof of the average soldier's life. They lived their life out under the weather elements, in cold weather, in hot weather. They traveled many, many miles building the the great road system that would connect the entire Mediterranean empire. They carried on their back 70 to 80 pounds of equipment and, and the things that they needed to exist. They were always in uh, danger of guerrilla warfare and being attacked on all sides by the barbarian tribes that surrounded them, especially as they were building those road systems. And Paul capitalizes on this knowledge of the suffering of the Roman soldier, and he portrays this in the life of the Christian, and he says, Here it is, Timothy. Welcome to the jungle. Welcome to discipleship. This is not your best life now. This is a call to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me to the place of death. Mm. This word entangled literally means to be entwined. Soldiers can't be entwined in the things that civilians are. Because soldiers live for a different purpose. We live for the pleasure of of our master. We don't live necessarily we have to please our spouses, husbands say amen. We must parent our children and we want to please them as well. However, our greatest responsibility is to please the one who enlisted us. And anytime we're swimming upstream in a culture like ours that is so hostile to the claims of the gospel, it is going to attract a certain amount of hostility. So Paul reminds Timothy who you are, that suffering is inevitable. But secondly, he reminds Timothy of the discipline of an athlete. Notice verse 5. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Keep in mind that in the ancient Greek Olympic Games, that every athlete had to stand before the emperor and had to swear that he had spent the previous year in training for the event that he was going to be competing in. There was, just like today, there are athletes that spend their whole year, or three years before the Olympics that takes place every four years, training for that one event. And Paul reminds Timothy that if we're going to be serious disciples, then we need to discipline ourselves like an athlete does. Do you know that discipline and disciple share the same root word? Have you ever noticed that? That you can't be a disciple without discipline 
And this is where many of us fail is in our discipline. We want to be a disciple, but we will want to discipline ourselves to become the kinds of disciples that Jesus is calling us to be. But as we discipline ourselves, and the truth is that God has given us a number of disciples or disciplines that act as means of grace for us, disciplines like prayer and reading of scripture and meditation and memorizing scripture and fasting and other means of grace that God has given us so that our faith can be strengthened so that we might be able to be built up so that we might be able to be prepared so that we might be able to enter the conflict and fight the good fight of faith well how many of you are musicians this morning pastor Caleb will appreciate uh, this illustration when I first started learning to play the guitar it was a horrible mess Right, trying to find all those notes and chords on the fretboard. And I would listen to it, and even the instructor that I was, you know, listening to, and notice how fast they were doing it. And I thought to myself, I'll never, ever, ever get this. I mean, just trying to make an F, you know, shape is, is more than I can handle. And then going from that to another chord, there's no way I can do that. And then you look at these great musicians and these great guitarists that are just up and down the fretboard. You're like, how do they do that? You know what brings freedom? Thousands of hours of discipline. There's a spiritual principle here, so hang on with me. Thousands of hours of playing the guitar and going up and down the fretboard has led to the freedom to play without even thinking about it anymore. I wonder if the reason that so many of us live in bondages that Jesus has freed us from. I wonder if the reason so many of us live holy, unsanctified lives, even though we've been called to sanctification, is because we've not spent the time in discipline to actually live as free Christians. And I'm not just pointing the finger at you. I'm pointing the finger back at me as well. Because you're not the only one who struggles with discipline. And how many know that discipline is more than just having a daily prayer time? Discipline involves a whole measure of things. It it, it involves the way that we consume resources. The way that we spend our money. The way that we eat. All of our life. Discipline. And finally, Paul reminds us. Of the hard work of a farmer. Notice what he says, verse 6. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have first share of the crops. Kind of an enigmatic statement that Paul makes here. I mean, are we really clear on why does Paul say it this way? Why is he offering up farmer as an example, an illustration of discipleship? Because he wants to remind us that discipleship and leading people in discipleship is hard work. In fact, agricultural metaphors are are one of Paul's most common metaphors that he uses. And he reminds us here that ultimately we're not responsible for the fruit of the harvest. What we're responsible to do is to plant the seed. But here's Paul's promise that if we labor and we toil and we plant the seed faithfully, that there will come a harvest. I don't know, but as a pastor, that has always encouraged me. I'm not responsible for whether the fruit gains 30, 60, or 100 fold. Because I don't control the soil. I don't make the sun shine. I don't make the clouds go away. I don't make the rains come. 
There's nothing that I can do except faithfully plant the seed. But I'm promised that if I faithfully plant the seed, that God's work, God's word will do its work. And that there will be a harvest. And guess what? We're going to be the first partakers of that harvest. That's why Paul was able to say, we proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all of his energy which so powerfully is working in me. That word energy, that divine spirit that is working in us, that energizes us to keep going when we want to quit. That infuses us with strength and power when we don't have power coming from anywhere else. Paul reminds us that this is what we have at our disposal. That's why Paul reminds the Galatians to be not weary in well-doing, for in due season you will reap if you faint not. This is the life of discipleship. It's suffering like a soldier. It's disciplining yourself like an athlete. And it's working hard like a farmer. But it is all to one end, so that the gospel might not rest alone with this generation. It might not become extinct in our country, might not become extinct in our neighborhood, might not become extinct or a thing of the past in our town, in our community, but that we might entrust it so that the ripple effect goes on for generation after generation for as long as the Lord our God shall tarry. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for the power of your word, Lord, to speak to us. Lord, we ask you to touch hearts this morning. We know that those that are here this morning have a desire for you or else they wouldn't be here. Would you help us to see the critical nature of making disciples? Lord, would you help us, Lord, to even, would you lay upon our hearts those that are around us that we see that might need encouragement, that might need to be discipled? And would you give us the boldness to actually approach them? Maybe to invite them to dinner or coffee? Just to talk about spiritual things? Father, I pray for your blessing over this people, over this church, over this ministry. We thank you for your faithfulness over these many years to Lewis and Clark Bible Church. We know the best is yet to come because your grace is alive and well and empowering us to make disciples generation after generation. In Christ's name, amen.